0: Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right.
1: All right, we are back. It's kind of a sad commentary that the best, or at least some of the best, reporting that seems to be going on in America is done by comedians. Mr. Durst being one example, and of course you got the Colbert Report, you've got the uh, the Daily Show, and I think a lot of uh, younger people seem to be getting their uh, information on what's going on from late-night TV monologues. So in that vein, we cannot resist going to Andy Borowitz for a summary of what's going on with the Wall Street protesters. By the way, we hope you caught Andy Borowitz on a KQIE or... or, or um, KQED, they had city arts and lecturers talking with him a couple nights back. He was in, in rare form. But to quote from the current Borowitz report, Millions of Americans cheered the news that arrests had finally been made on Wall Street, but were disappointed to learn that the wrong people had been taken into custody. I was like, finally they're going to get those bastards, said Tracy Klugin of Queens, New York. I guess it was too good to be true. NYPD spokesman Frank Hannafee explained the controversial decision to arrest Occupy Wall Street protesters while leaving the people who had brought the nation's economy to the brink of Armageddon unmolested. Said Hannafee, As far as soulless individuals pillaging the country for their personal gain, that's none of our business. But we'll be damned if we're going to let people march on newly seeded grass. Well, we hoped on this program uh, a while back that we would see a swelling of interest in the protests going on. We think a lot of good may come of this. And indeed, since we were on the air last week, this Occupy Wall Street protest movement has continued to gain momentum. In New York this past week, protesters have paused outside the homes of media mogul Rupert Murdoch, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, and industrialist David Koch chanting, we are the 99%. And as protests are now going into their fifth week, politicians in Washington have finally begun weighing in. President Obama, of course, said the protests reflected the frustrations many ordinary Americans feel toward top bankers who caused the recession but escaped punishment. Let's quote from a few pertinent columnists on this issue. Paul Krugman, writing for the New York Times, said the protest of Wall Street as a destructive force is completely right. This is actually from about two weeks ago. Krugman said at that time that when the Occupy Wall Street protests began three weeks ago, most news organizations were derisive if they deigned to mention the events at all. For example, nine days into the protest, National Public Radio had provided no coverage whatsoever. Said Krugman, what can we say about the protest? First things first, the protesters' indictment of Wall Street as a destructive force economically and politically is completely right. A weary cynicism, a belief that justice will never get served, has taken over much of our political debates. He goes on to describe this whole thing as an act in three plays. Our economic problem. He said, in the first act, bankers took advantage of deregulation to run wild and pay themselves princely sums, inflating huge bubbles through reckless lending. In the second act, the bubbles burst, but bankers were bailed out by taxpayers with remarkably few strings attached. In the third act, bankers showed their gratitude by turning on the people who had saved them, throwing their support and the wealth they still possessed, thanks to the bailouts, behind politicians who promised to keep their taxes low and dismantle the mild regulations erected in the aftermath of the crisis. He concludes by note that Democrats are being given what amounts to a second chance. The Obama administration squandered a lot of political goodwill early on by adopting banker-friendly policies. Now Obama's party has a chance for a do-over. All it has to do is take these protests as seriously as they deserve to be taken. And a dovetailing with those remarks are these by Eugene Robinson at the Washington Post. Defend Wall Street is not likely to be a winning campaign slogan in 2012 for Republicans. For President Obama and the Democrats, it's a golden, if largely undeserved, opportunity. Robinson notes it's true that in the years before the crash, many Americans made what turned out to be unwise decisions. We spent money we should have saved. We bought bigger houses than our families needed. We took out too many student loans, but now we're having to deal with the consequences of these poor choices while the wizards of Wall Street smugly rebalanced their portfolios, having benefited from what amounts to a free pass. This week's New Yorker had a laugh-out-loud color, color illustration. Top-headed bankers marched down Wall Street carrying protest signs that say, keep things precisely as they are, and leave well enough alone. And I'm good, thanks. Of course, somewhat predictably, and I don't, actually, I'm not sure why anybody reads nationalreview.com, but as quoted in The Week magazine, Victor David Hanson said, Well, which inequalities do the Occupy Wall Street crowd want to tackle? The fact that a municipal worker makes 30000 a year, while liberal darlings like Matt Damon and Johnny Depp extort $20 million for a month's work? Jesus, is that all they got? Liberal movie stars are extorting money? Well, I got news for the people over at nationalreview.com. If the movies weren't making great sums, they wouldn't be paying their actors princely amounts. And of course, this is not a phenomenon confined to Wall Street. There's protests taking place right here in Sacramento. The coverage, we would note, has not been stellar. Noted the Sacramento News and Review in their cut and paste section. Local TV station CBS 13 should get whatever the opposite of an Emmy is for their coverage of the early days of Occupy Sacramento. One particular segment, quote, some Occupy Sacramento protesters lash out at questions, trotted out the same tired and basically dishonest angle that the occupiers don't have a clear message. That thesis was paired with some clips of a CBS reporter in suit and tie getting into some mildly confrontational exchanges with a couple of young and raucous protesters. Note of the news and review, not everybody can be as well-spoken as and incisive as the pros at CBS 13. That's true of any crowd, be it a tea party gathering, safe ground march, rally for a new King's Arena, or Columbus Day Parade. Article by Nick Miller also in the News Review talking about how arrests were quietly made a few nights ago. To quote from that piece, About 12.45 a.m., it all happens. A fleet of more than three dozen cop cars, two police wagons, and one multimedia communications RV light up the streets before parking on 9th. Next, some six dozen SWAT team members donning riot gear helmets and automatic weapons emerge to form two single-file rows. The first wave of SWAT from a perimeter around the 19 occupiers who lie completely still, followed by a second crew who begin sighting and arresting one by one. It's a quiet, uneventful, non-violent scene. The authorities are professionals. But as one onlooker proclaims, you don't need a SWAT team. You could have turned on the sprinklers, and they would have gone home. Now, we uh, have not had a chance to go down there ourselves to check out what's going on in Cesar Chavez Plaza, but thankfully we have someone who has been there. Joining us now to talk about what she saw firsthand is Nancy Yamada, a local attorney, and, she, and she's one of the good ones, and community activist. Nancy, welcome Radio Parallax.
0: Thanks, Doug.
1: So uh, what was taking place when you went by Cesar Chavez recently?
0: I was actually out of town, uh, out of state when the demonstration started, but I did come back last week, and I made it on Saturday to the march to the Capitol. And it was quite well attended. Uh, I would say well over 500 people. Really? I've asked others, and they've said a 1,000 or 800. And I would say somewhere in that range. And as I'm not good with numbers, I actually that evening went home to Google that, yeah. figure out what... The, the mainstream media said, as I generally find their reports inaccurate and had a very difficult time finding anything. In fact, I found nothing on numbers for that evening. I saw a couple of reports about the arrests and the appearance of uh, Cindy Sheehan to speak at, to the rally, but nothing on numbers.
1: Well, that's always been a great, uh, a great controversy. I think that uh, back in 2003, there were worldwide protests. Prior to the war in Iraq, that I, I gather were the largest turnouts in history, and that, that sort of got got lost in the shuffle in the reporting. And and by what uh, by what I've been reading here, I'm shocked to hear that there were you know nearly a thousand people, perhaps in, in downtown Sacramento. I had no idea.
0: I saw media outlets. I saw Channel Three, Channel Thirteen, the uh, Spanish news channel. Somebody from the B. So I was very surprised when they didn't make it to that evening's news, to their website, or even the papers the next day. Well, uh, people are
1: criticizing this movement for being somewhat leaderless, but uh, in a way I think that could be its strength. I mean, there isn't any central uh, agenda of people that are protesting. I gather that they just sort of are fed up with the fact that the Wall Street types who engineered this collapse of the economy have, have gotten off scot-free. Is that, is that sort of what you're gathering?
0: Yes, I would say so. I, I think there is a um, a single message and it's a Wall Street excess and corporate greed. And you see all the different various factions there. And it's all tied into that, if you ask me. I mean, there's people protesting about the lack of public education, the education cuts, the bank bailouts, the mortgage crisis. I think that is all tied in into corporate excess, corporate greed.
1: Well, I gather the Sacramento City Council has uh, decided that uh, they were not going to allow people to camp out in, in the park. And I guess was that, how did that play out in what you were seeing? Was that causing arrests?
0: You know, you can get a live feed. Uh, it's it's live stream. Uh, I don't know. You can probably Google it, live stream um, Occupy okay. Sacramento. Okay. And I wasn't there personally. You know, last night was a city council meeting. And so m- many demonstrators kick uh, went to attend the city council meeting, and my understanding is that they weren't granted a waiver from, and arrests did happen last night. There was a heavy police presence from what I saw on um, live stream. A core group of uh, over 50 people, maybe 55 people were in the park. The police gave uh, one order to disperse, and then a second order, and then they surrounded the place and started making arrests. Um, Most of the crowd moved out of the park and onto the sidewalk and I believe about eight or nine people were arrested last night.
1: Well, you're a labor attorney. I don't know this may be an unfair question, but I'm, I understand that people in the labor movement are finding uh, this whole Occupy Wall Street movement to be something that uh, they feel they should support. You have any insight into that?
0: That's correct. I also get lots of emails from various community groups and including um, several labor groups, both national and local, and they've all um, been in to support. Um, provide supplies when necessary. You know, you get the little tweets on asking what supplies are needed for the day or any support that could be given.
1: Well, Nancy, uh, we hope that as this continues, the story continues to evolve and it will, that you can maybe give us uh, some feedback on that. Are you, are you are you close to the center of action down there?
0: At this moment, I'm on the other side of the Capitol, but guess what? I need to evacuate my building because of their asbestos removal. I'm going to have a temporary office in the uh, library building right across the street from Chavez Park, so I can keep a close eye and probably spend lunches there, too.
1: All right, well, we're counting you to do exactly that as the weeks go forward because we do hope that this people will continue to protest this, give their support to it, and just express some dissatisfaction with the fact that, yeah, Wall Street has not been... Uh, Held accountable for what took place. I mean, Paul Krugman mentioned we read, read a minute ago that people would like to see them uh, dismantle the mild regulations erected in the aftermath of the crisis. I'm I'm hard pressed to even think of what regulations they put in place in terms of changing anything. Can you?
0: No. <laughs> it just you know there's a lot to be undone.
1: Well, all right. Well, Nancy, thanks for the feedback. Let's go back to you in a week or two and get an update because I I do hope that this will continue to remain uh, on the front burner, as it were.
0: Thank you, Deck. It's finally the table are starting to turn. Talking about a revolution. This finally the tables are starting to turn. Talking about, a oh, no. talking
1: about a revolution. All right, I guess we should conclude our discussion on this particular topic with a quote from a noted union leader who said back in 1985 We're going to close the unproductive tax loopholes that allow some of the truly wealthy to avoid paying their fair share. In theory, some of these loopholes were understandable, but in practice, they'd sometimes make it possible for a millionaire to pay nothing while a bus driver was paying 10% of his salary, and that's crazy. Do you think the millionaire ought to pay more in taxes than the bus driver, or less? That was spoken by the former head of the Screen Actors Guild, and later President Ronald Reagan, on June 6th of 1985. So this sentiment that sometimes the wealthy are escaping their fair share of taxes is not confined to people that are on trust funds with nose rings. All right, we've got a few minutes left in this segment. Let's talk about some other bits of insanity going on in terms of uh, what I guess in the broad sense is our legal system. To quote from the Sacramento News and Review, article by Nick Miller, This past Friday, California's four U.S. attorneys laid out a case that the state's medical cannabis collectives are crime-causing, illegal money machines that funnel pot to children. Then they announced a plan to shut down all of the commercial dispensaries and grows within 45 days. Ngayo Bilem, who's been a medical cannabis activist for most of his life, has seen this before. The comedian and publisher of West Coast Cannabis sat down with SNNR just as the feds announced our latest crackdown to talk fact, fiction, and what happens next. Nick asked what's going on, and Gaios said the Department of Justice has apparently lost its mind. They've decided that instead of going after the bankers and companies who defrauded the economy out of trillions of dollars, they're going to come after cannabis users who will put millions of dollars into the economy. Apparently they feel it's better for cannabis to be an underground, non-taxable item than it is for it to be a revenue-generating, job-creating industry. Asked to speculate on motivation and a guy who said, there's a lot of things here. I think that it was H.L. Mencken who said, don't expect a man to understand you if his job is to not understand you. If you look at how they have to justify their billion-dollar drug war budgets, most of those they arrest are cannabis users. And if they can no longer arrest a cannabis user, how are they going to justify hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars? So that's the first thing. Those cats are just afraid for their jobs. And speaking on this subject, in an open letter to President Obama, was Jeff Von Canel, president of the News and Review. Said Jeff, Dear President Barack Obama, two years ago you said your administration would not go after dispensaries in states where marijuana is legal for medical use. But last Friday, your U.S. Department of Justice attorneys announced a crackdown on medical marijuana dispensaries and cultivators in California. In addition, they questioned the right of local jurisdictions to regulate this growing industry. I believe this shift in policy will do significantly more harm than good. Closing California's dispensaries could jeopardize thousands of jobs, not just those that are directly linked to medical marijuana, but many others, such as physicians, security guards, solar panel specialists, delivery drivers, lab techs, marketing specialists, attorneys, insurance agents, specialized government jobs, media jobs, and many others. Local TV, radio, online, and print media, including the Sacramento Bee and Business Journal, and especially, full disclosure, the Sacramento News and Review, have been helped by medical marijuana advertising dollars. And the money that's pumped in the local economy by these dispensaries is spent on rent, groceries, and at local restaurants and retail stores. One of the worst consequences of this crackdown would be to drive this industry back underground. The biggest beneficiary of this would be the Mexican drug cartels. California's dispensaries have been operating legally within the state. These dispensaries pay fees and taxes and may contribute in other ways to our communities. An unregulated underground drug trade would potentially leave about a million Californians who now use medical marijuana with nowhere to turn but an illegal drug dealer on the corner. Jeff closes by noting that just as prohibition of alcohol did not work, prohibition of marijuana will not work. The prosecution of medical marijuana dispensaries has worse consequences than the use and possible misuse of marijuana. If anyone should know that, it should be you. If our country's marijuana laws were strictly enforced, you might be serving time in a cell along with our past two presidents rather than serving our country in the White House. Finally, I humbly suggest that our U.S. attorneys have much more important things to do than cracking down on medical marijuana dispensaries. Might I suggest looking at banking and securities fraud, for example? Signed, one of your strongest supporters who was baffled by your recent shift in policy, Jeff Von Canel, President, News and Review. Also signed Also sounding off on this, Marcos Breton in a column in the Sacramento Bee. Mr. Breton is not a fan of cannabis uh, dispensaries and the way things are going in California, but he said, when a U.S. attorney in California says she's going to go after advertisers who carry medical marijuana ads, as my own newspaper does, you know you've gone down the rabbit hole. Laura E. Duffy, federal Prosecutor's district includes Imperial and San Diego County, said in an interview last week with California Watch and KQED, I'm actually hearing radio and seeing TV advertising of medical marijuana. It's gone mainstream. Not only is it inappropriate, one has to wonder what kind of message we're sending to our children. It's against the law. Said Marcos Breton, a U.S. attorney this surprised by the obvious is worthy of satire. He went on, last week, Ben Wagner, the U.S. attorney based in Sacramento, went on Capitol Public Radio and said, We're not talking about taking people's medicine. We're not pursuing sick people. Okay, said Marcos, but according to the federal law, marijuana is classified as a Schedule I drug, among the most harmful and devoid of any medical value. So what medicine is Mr. Wagner talking about? If you're enforcing the letter of federal law, you go after all dispensaries, right? Wagner said his officers are not, going to be go- are not going to be going after people who are genuinely sick and using medical marijuana for their own care. If that's the case, shouldn't the feds be removing marijuana from its most restrictive category? Shouldn't the FDA move forward with scientific studies to determine if marijuana should be legally used as medicine? In 2009, the American Medical Association called for this. So has the American Society of Addiction Medicine, a professional society of doctors promoting improved quality of addiction medicine. And right as these uh, columnists were signing off, uh, in the LA Times, Anthony York article notes the California Medical Association wants pot to be legalized and regulated. Article notes, California's largest doctor group is calling for legalization of marijuana, even as it pronounces cannabis to be of questionable medical value. Trustees of the California Medical Association, which represents more than 35,000 physicians statewide, adopted the position at their annual meeting in Anaheim last Friday. Dr. Donald Lyman, a Sacramento physician who wrote the group's new policy, attributed the shift to growing frustration over California's medical marijuana law, which permits cannabis use with a doctor's recommendation. That, he said, has created an untenable situation for physicians, deciding whether to give patients a substance that is illegal under federal law. Of course, in the interest of fairness, and I have to return to Andy Borowitz, who commenting upon CNN's obsession with being, quote, fair, unquote, said, you know, if Jesus came back, CNN would probably give him two minutes and say, and now we're going to hear from Satan on the same issue. But the LA Times had to hear from the opposition in this issue as well. Spokesman for the California Police Chiefs Association, John Lovell, said, I wonder what they're smoking. Given everything we know about the physiological impacts of marijuana, how it affects young brains, the number of accidents associated with driving under the influence, it's just an unbelievably irresponsible position. Hey, uh, Mr. Lovell, I'm not sure what it is you know about the physiological impacts of marijuana, but, you know, don't don't practice medicine without a license, okay? Law enforcement types have been looking for some disease, some condition, which they can pin marijuana use and misuse upon, and... <laughs> Doggone it! They just can't seem to find it. I'm not for one minute suggesting that that cannabis, which can be very strong, powerful, uh, powerful drug these days, is something that uh, you know can be used indiscriminately. God know. But if you're looking for you know the physiological impacts of marijuana on young brains, well, I guess you better keep looking. As as someone we've quoted on this on this show before, a local physician, in fact, me has asked those uh, in law enforcement to show me another drug or medication that I can't kill you with in overdose. You can go to a 7-Eleven right now and buy a fatal dose of caffeine. You can certainly kill yourself with alcohol. You can certainly kill yourself with nicotine, although it takes a while. Although, you know, in overdose, you can get over pretty quickly. People kill themselves with Tylenol every year. Anyway, uh, when you're talking about, you know, its toxicity... Speaking from a medical perspective, you have to admit this is a very well-tolerated medication, and I think that's about all I'm going to say on this. We need a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We have plenty more in segment three. Stick around.